Support for AHLA comes from Pinnacle, which is a trusted advisor to a wide range of for-profit and not-for-profit healthcare organizations nationally. They leverage the resources of their six consulting divisions to provide superior services such as compensation valuation and provider arrangements, transaction support services and valuation, value-based care and cost reduction, compliance and revenue cycle services, enterprise risk and healthcare operations management support, and real estate consulting. Pinnacle has been a partner in the business of healthcare for the last 25 years. For more information, visit askphc.com. Welcome everyone to the podcast. We're going to talk today about value-based care and transactions in value-based care. I'm joined today by Kristen McDermott Woodrum and Michael Lamell, and we're going to uh, have a sort of question and answer format uh, for our session today. And I'm going to start uh, with the first question, which I'm going to pose to both uh, Michael and Kristen, and that is, will you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your role and experience with value-based care? And I'm going to start with uh, Michael. Perfect. And thank you so much, Andrea. Uh, greetings. Uh, my name is Michael Lamel, uh, and I hold the position of Director of Value-Based Care Contracting at Advent Health. Uh, Advent Health's nonprofit healthcare system, uh, headquartered in Florida, that operates facilities in nine states across the U.S. Uh, in my role um, as uh, Director of Value-Based Care Contracting, I oversee contracting and negotiations with payers across various domains. Uh, in this role, I'm responsible for managing contracts within our clinically integrated networks, uh, employed medical group primary care network, uh, bundle payment programs, direct to employer efforts, and clinics catering to the 65 plus population. Uh, with a legal background and an LLM in health law, uh, coupled with, with my recent completion of an MBA, I, 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 I like to believe that I'm that I bring a well-rounded skill set to my role. So um, I say that jokingly, but certainly the, the topic of which we will be talking through today is one that I'm very passionate about and I'm honored to have been invited by the AHLA to share insights. So once again, uh, thank you for the opportunity, Andrea. Well, thank you so much for being here, Michael. Uh, Kristen, um, same question to you. Will you tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your role and experience with value-based care? Yes, thank you, Andrea. I'm Kristen McDermott-Woodrum, a partner in the Atlanta office of McGuire Woods. I focus on healthcare transactions and regulatory matters, primarily for providers, including health systems, and have worked with value-based care over the years um, with a range of providers, including evaluating, entering into, exiting, and participating in CMS and CMMI alternative payment models, um, all the ACOs, the ins and outs of participation, including overlapping participation in multiple models, the impact of the transaction on participation, and requirements of the quality payment program with its MIPS and alternative payment model, advanced alternative payment model tracks. Um, I've worked with clients to stand up clinically integrated networks, uh, structuring around you know, antitrust, tax, fraud and abuse issues, um, including governance documents, participation agreements, charters, and working with, with folks like Mike, Michael and the payer strategy. Um, I've helped clients create direct contracting arrangements for large employers, um, assist on bundled payment arrangements or episode-based payment arrangements, 
which I really saw kick off um, with a shift in more procedures to outpatient setting, including total joint replacement. Um, and additionally, uh, I've done a lot of joint ventures around those types of outpatient settings. Um, I've worked in investment in hospital at home and other tech-enabled care delivery, which has really transformed how healthcare is delivered and reimbursed, and helped clients evaluate and invest in tech-enabled solutions of virtual care. I have a little more limited experience on the plan side with TPAs and plans focused on integrated provider plans. Um, and I've worked with private equity investors in this area. They see a lot of opportunity in value-based care. Um, and finally, a little bit of work with a large employer coalition on its attempts to be a more active purchaser of higher quality affordable care. So you both have a lot of really interesting experience uh, to bring to this conversation, and I'm really excited to have you both uh, here today. Um, I, we're, we said we were talking about value-based care, and uh, I really think that there are various notions of what this term means. So uh, to sort of level set and, and let listeners know what we're, what we're focusing on today, um, can you each give, um, from your perspective, a, a definition for the term value-based care, what value-based care means? And I'm going to start with uh, Michael again. Uh, thank you, Andrea. And I, I certainly appreciate us starting off with this question because I've, I've been to numerous conferences and a bunch of meetings, and there certainly are different iterations of what value-based care is. Uh, from my perspective, as, as you questioned it, uh, value-based care is, is a healthcare model that's all about giving top-notch care, cutting costs, and making sure patients get better. Uh, instead of just focusing on how many people they see, it puts the spotlight on quality and effectiveness. Uh, they really push for things like taking preventative measures, putting the patient at the center of everything, and utilizing uh, practices that are backed up by evidence, right? Uh, so the goal in my mind and what we're doing here is to make sure patients have a great experience, uh, improve the overall health of the population, and save money by being efficient and working together. You know, they, they also want to measure outcomes, right? So make sure payments are tied to good quality and encourage collaboration between healthcare providers alike. Um, at the end of the day, basically, value-based care is all about using resources wisely to get the best outcomes for patients. And, and Kristen, um, do you want to weigh in on what, from your perspective, the term value-based care means? I, I think I'm going to adopt Michael's definition going forward. Um, that was well articulated. <laughs> I'll note, <laughs> I'll note that um, you know, we hear a lot about value-based care, but it's mainly in the context of how the care is reimbursed. So the focus is really on value-based payment rather than value-based care delivery. Um, and increasingly I'm hearing people talk about capitation being the end goal of value-based care, um, you know, being a model where providers are paid based on outcomes. But really, as Michael said, the central components are quality and health outcomes and the cost of care. Um, you know, while we have an enormous healthcare spend in the United States, we still have poor health outcomes, which affects everyone. And so, you know, some of the academics, Michael Porter at Harvard and others have 
articulated that value equals health outcomes that matter to patients divided by the cost of delivering the outcomes. So in that context, value is the goal that can unite the interests of all the system participants as a solution to reduce the burden of healthcare um, on the government and us as stakeholders and have a healthier, healthier population. But the big question has always been how to design a healthcare delivery system that substantially improves patient value. And then at the macro level, how to shift competition to competing on value. And I would also add that, um, you know, looking at different care delivery models that achieve the goal, of, the goal of value, I would cast the net wide to encompass care coordination, developing a care team, developing and adhering to clinical pathways, approving care protocols, um, utilizing advanced practice providers at the top of their license in that care team, shifting the site of service to a lower cost setting and transforming how care is delivered entirely. Um, and for that, I think acute hospital care at home is a great, great example, just in sort of the means of delivering value-based care. So, so Kristen, you mentioned uh, casting the net wide and, and including many different types of providers in value-based care. Um, that's sort of a good segue into uh, my next question, which is, who and what types of healthcare stakeholders do you see currently participating in value-based care? And is that changing or do you foresee it changing uh, in the near future? Um, yeah, that's a great question, Andrea. And I think that it's um, variable across the country. In some markets, we have greater penetration of value-based care and in certain kind of segments of the market. I mean, we've certainly come a long way since the Affordable Care Act was enacted for the past you know, over 10 years. CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, has been working to transition the entire healthcare system to value-based care by testing and evaluating new payment and service delivery models. Um, and if you look at the CMMI map where innovation is happening, it shows it all across the country. You know, they've tested over 50 models, um, although, only six have generated statistically significant savings and only four met the requirements um, articulated for CMMI to expand a program. Um, but they're looking to refresh their strategy and have all traditional Medicare beneficiaries and a vast majority of Medicaid beneficiaries in a relationship with accountability for quality and total cost of care by 2030. Um, you know, similarly, the CMS quality payment program created by MACRA ties more Medicare payments to performance and encourages participation in alternative payment models. Um, and I think it's a range as a healthcare um, payment learning and action network has established a framework uh, we often look to for the tra transition to value-based care. So four categories there are fee-for-service, flat fee-for-service, no quality or value link to category two, which is fee-for-service with a link to quality and value, pay for reporting, pay for performance, moving to alternative payment models with shared savings or both upside and downside risk. And then finally, you know, that true population-based payment. And so, you know, we may have a lot of the pop, a lot of the providers across the country on level two, where they're, you know, pay for reporting, um, pay for some sort of quality metrics, you know, in terms of shifting people to upside and downside risk, you know, we haven't quite gotten there yet. 
Um, but in some pockets, we're seeing a lot of that. I work with a lot of orthopedic groups that are successfully participating in bundled payment programs, you know, episode-based care. Um, the accountable care programs are, you know, thriving. We currently have, um, I think, 450 MSSPs with close to 11 million assigned beneficiaries. And thanks to the MSSP Pathways to Success Rule, um, which was intended to promote a quicker transition to that two-sided risk, currently 67% of those MSSP ACOs are in two-sided risk payments. Um, we also see commercial ACOs and value-based payer contracts with clinically integrated networks. You know, there's a varying degree of risk bearing there. I think the trend is really to start small with some quality metrics and upside, maybe a per member per month care for coordination payment. Um, and then I think we're seeing a shift towards accepting risk with value-based enablement value-based enablement companies, um, the ACA REACH program, where we've seen a lot of private investment. And then again on the kind of private side, the Medicare Advantage, which is, you know, capitated. Um, payment to the plan, and increasingly we're seeing interest in providers downstream of Medicare Advantage or other sort of risk-bearing entities capturing a portion of the savings by delivering delivering care um, with some downside risk. Uh, and in certain specialties, I think nephrology, I mentioned orthopedics, we're seeing a ton of value-based care um, moving that way potentially in specialties like oncology and cardiology. Um, and then on the primary care side, you know, that's central to those population-based and accountable care models. There's been a lot of outside corporate investment in um, primary care and the acceptance of capitated risk for that population. So, so it seems like the, the universe of participants in value-based care is, is really expanding. I think uh, years ago, it really was um, something that was focused primarily on primary care physicians, um, but you've certainly mentioned a lot of specialists who are very active in this space now, um, and I think we're starting to see um, other types of stakeholders become very active in the value-based care space as well. Um, you mentioned hospitals and um, and uh, post-acute providers and investors in private equity and so on. Um, Michael. Um, I, I want to uh, pose the same uh, question to you. Who or what types of healthcare stakeholders do you see currently participating in value-based care from your perspective? Um, and do you foresee that changing? Yes. Um, listening to, to Kristen's answer and, and, and your additional comments there, Andrea, at the end, I, I think you, you both captured extremely well uh, what, what I'm seeing as well. Um, for the most part, PCPs are the main participants in many of these types of models as, you know, most quality metrics and utilization gaps are primary care focused. Um, as for specialists, programs are being deployed uh, within the last few years um, around specific diseases and conditions, as Kristen stated. Uh, what I'm seeing there specifically are uh, programs around CKD or chronic kidney disease and ESRD, you know, end-stage renal disease. Uh, so programs that focus there. And then from a private equity perspective, firms are increasingly investing in healthcare organizations involved in value-based care. <clears throat> they provide financial resources and strategic support 
uh, both from an operational perspective as well as through uh, existing payer relationships. They, they have these pre-established relationships with payers and they're bringing it to the table, partnering with, with physicians and such, uh, essentially to promote you know, the development and expansion of value-based care models, uh, aiming to improve patient outcomes and achieve uh, sustainable financial performance. Uh, so very much aligned with, with both of your responses. Um, and, and what I'm seeing is exactly this, you know, a, a lot more attention and inclusion of specialists in this, in this space. And of course, you know, as Kristen mentioned, uh, enablers, right? This is something that from my perspective is, is fairly new, but we're seeing more enablers uh, uh, participate and, and, and putting some skin in the game when it comes to downside risk contracts. So one of the things that we wanted to focus on in this podcast um, was uh, trends with respect to transactions and value-based care. Um, And I'm going to start with a question to Michael um, about transactions. So from your perspective, what are some of the notable recent examples of uh, transactions in the value-based care space? Um, so, So as I think of uh, your question. I have uh, two two thoughts that come to mind. I'll start off by randomly saying two words, uh, vertical integration, right? Um, number one, the first example that comes to mind is um, it's, it's about five years old back in 2018 when, when health insurance uh, Cigna completed its acquisition of pharmacy benefit manager Express Scripts. Uh, this transaction was significant uh, because it brought together a health insurer and a pharmacy benefit manager under one single umbrella, one entity, uh, which allows for greater integration and coordination of healthcare services by combining, you know, their care, their capabilities. Uh, Cigna and Express Scripts aim to enhance medication management and improve health outcomes for for those patients while reducing costs through different. Uh, value-based initiatives. But then number two, you think of CVS Health, right? Uh, Around the same time, I think it was also in 2018, CVS Health acquired Aetna, which then later acquired Signify Health, which is a technology-based platform uh, that provides analytics, among other technology support, as well as a major major presence in uh, home health care. Uh, followed by their most recent acquisition of Oak Street Health. You know, so with the acquisition of Signify Health, I believe um, that acquisition brought forth a little bit over a thousand providers across all 50 states. And now with the acquisition of Oak Street Health, they picked up 169 medical centers, which I don't know exactly what the count of providers is, but certainly very significant in size across most of the United States. I believe it was 29 or 30 states. Uh, so, you know, that last example for me certainly is something that's uh, a notable example of a, of a value-based care transaction, specifically because it solidifies uh, their efforts to implement value-based uh, payment ecosystems across the board. Yeah, I agree with Michael. Those are fantastic examples of um, value-based transactions and definitely keep an eye on the vertical integration. Um, look at those payers, look at the providers. I would add Optum is poised right now to acquire Medicis, which is a home care provider that also owns Contessa, which is a big hospital advanced care at home player. And so I would consider that to be sort of a value-based strategy, um, you know, driving that transaction. 
Um, and the dollars on the transactions that Michael described, they're huge. And there's, you know, there's been bidding wars, including for Signify Health. Um, so there's a ton of interest here and the value in kind of controlling these assets and services is, you know, clear, um, you know, Walgreens, Village MD, Amazon, One Medical, other examples of, um, you know, value-based investment. Um, and then I would say on the hospital side, kind of moving away from all these corporate disruptors and um, kind of the payers, uh, I think it's very interesting to see that Kaiser uh, is planning to launch a new nonprofit, Ryzen Health. Um, they announced in May that they would acquire Geisinger Health and expand through acquisitions of health systems focused on value-based care. And so that's, you know, two very old, very experienced health systems um, that have focused on value-based care. Um, coming together. The full financial terms of that deal weren't disclosed, but Kaiser did indicate that it plans to invest $5 billion in Ryzen over the next five years or so and acquire five or six health systems to get to total revenues of 30 to $35 billion. And their goals are to expand and accelerate the adoption of value-based care um, in diverse multi-payer, multi-provider community health system environment um, all value-based purposes that they've articulated um, in line with the definitions we, we started with. Um, and I think that's great. I mean, Geisinger is known for proven care and they have the pioneering approach to care redesign, a guarantee on certain procedures, lifetime warranty on joint replacements. You know, Kaiser has um, its health plans as well as its provider focus through its hospitals and Permanente groups. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity there for um, interesting um, care redelivery and, and reimbursement. And I think it might include hospital at home as a large component. That program was expanded for two more years under fee-for-service medic Medicare. Um, and I think a lot of us expect that it will stay in some form. And certainly for some payers, it makes a ton of sense to, um, you know, looking forward, perhaps have a, a lower reimbursement rate for an inpatient stay that occurs at a patient's home, um, you know, patient satisfaction, just looking at some of the numbers there, especially with Kaiser's medically home group um, that they own with Mayo, you know, are off the charts. People like being at home. There's, you know, no hospital-acquired infections in those circumstances. So, I, I would keep an eye on that just in terms of a nonprofit sort of hospital focused value-based care transaction. So Kristen, it, it sounds like you were um, identifying some, some trends there that are, um, I think, indicative of sort of where we're going with value-based care. And, and I'm going to ask Michael, I think, um, what trends uh, do you think listeners should be aware of or planning value-based care and related transactions um, as the market's evolving? Yeah, certainly. Um, so, so a few thoughts here. Um, for the most part, they're related to value-based care contracting, which is, as I stated earlier, is uh, specifically my, my concentration and focus. But I, I feel like, you know, listeners planning value-based care transactions uh, should be aware of at least these three key trends that, that I've been seeing for the last uh, few years. For firstly, 
the shift towards population health management is a crucial trend to consider um, as healthcare providers increasingly focus on managing the health of a defined population rather than merely treating individual patients. Uh, Value-based care models are becoming more prevalent, obviously, as we've been uh, discussing here. Uh, listeners should understand the principles of population health management and how it could be integrated into their contracting strategies. Um, additionally, um, as healthcare continues to evolve, so do the payment models associated with value-based care. So alternative payment models such as ACOs and bundle payments, as Kristen referenced earlier, are gaining traction, a lot of traction, as a matter of fact, um, as a means to incentivize better outcomes and reduce costs. So staying up to date with the latest payment models and their contractual implications is, is essential uh, for successful value-based care contracting. And then lastly, you know, and certainly not uh, least important, regulatory changes in policy developments at both the federal and state levels could greatly influence value-based care arrangements and contracting. So listeners uh, must stay informed about regulatory policy changes related to updates to reimbursement models, uh, modifications to quality metrics, which is something that, that I often see across our, our, our numerous contracts, um, and revisions to anti-kickback statutes, right? You know, these changes could impact the structure and implementation of value-based uh, care transactions, and it's essential to understand the evolving regulatory landscape. I think that's a, that's a key point, um, and, and maybe I'll ask uh, Kristen um, a little bit about um, the legal issues uh, that are affecting uh, the evolution of value-based care transactions. Um, Kristen, are there uh, specific stumbling blocks or developments that you think listeners should be aware of uh, for planning value-based care transactions going forward, things that, that maybe they should be focusing on? Yeah, I'll echo what Michael said is, you know, stay tuned. The rules are always changing. Um, you know, one example, um, to be reimbursed well under value-based models that CMMI is running, you have to focus on health equity um, and social determinants of health. That's a new, um, you know, broad focus of a lot of the new models we're seeing. I would also focus on some of the rules related to risk adjustment. Um, you know, Medicare Advantage is getting a lot of attention now. It provides coverage to over half of all Medicare beneficiaries, um, and it's just growing. And we've recently seen some tightening of the rules on the risk adjustment um, in MA for each beneficiary. The company receives a capitated payment that is the predicted cost of care, but it's adjusted um, you know, for beneficiaries who might have higher expected health costs based on health status um, or other factors. So um, there's been a lot of fraud and abuse focus on risk adjustment and also just the tightening of the rules and a new risk adjustment data validation rule. Um, and so that's, that's one aspect. Fraud and abuse in general is, you know, always, always something to keep an eye on. And um, in these arrangements, it takes a lot of resources and investment um, and re requires new relationships. And so that can create kind of opportunities and also sort of challenges if, you know, if you're trying to fund some of the um, value-based activities, you know, you still have to 
follow um, the requirements of, of the threat and abuse laws start kickback. And, you know, also the um, beneficiary inducement um, components of the civil monetary penalties law. So, you know, giving patients incentives to um, kind of enhance their care or adhere to care or, you know, have the opportunity to have access to care. Um, you know, all of that has to be structured to, to comply with the fraud and abuse laws. And that's possible, um, you know, traditionally our laws have meant to segregate different players in the healthcare um, ecosystem and you know, keep, keep everything arm's length to disincentivize overutilization and sort of the incentives of the fee-for-service system. Um, and it's turned on its head when we talk value-based care. Um, and so, you know, looking at the exceptions through a new lens, perhaps taking advantage of some of the flexibilities and the regulatory start rules, including the Stark and Kickback rules um, that came out in late 2020. Um, I've seen a lot of people structuring value-based enterprises um, to try to take advantage of flexibilities there. Um, other laws include, you know, data sharing, kind of HIPAA. You have to have data to make any sort of value-based arrangement work. And sharing that data has to, uh, you know, comply with the data privacy and security laws often under HIPAA will establish an organized healthcare arrangement or an OCA to enable some of that data sharing in the right circumstances. Um, you know, tax antitrust has to be considered in setting these things up, as well as insurance laws. Anytime you're bearing insurance risk, you know, there's potentially a requirement to register with the state as a risk-bearing organization or, um, you know, some other type of license uh, for insurance or you know, TPA administration type services. So a lot, a lot to think about, Andrea. <laughs> I was I was yeah, gonna I jump know. in. I was gonna jump in. I don't want to interrupt you, Kristen, because you said it so well. But you you certainly stole the words out of my mouth uh, related to to data. Um, you know, I I I I am stealing this catchphrase from a conference I attended a few weeks ago. Uh, no data, no deal, right? So um, I I was in Miami a few weeks ago attending a, a value based care summit. And I've been preaching this, uh, a, a similar message uh, through some of my uh, most recent LinkedIn posts, a payer's unwillingness to share key data sets such as you know, paid claims versus billed claims, something as simple as that is an issue that we often see and struggle with. So you know, the inability to receive actionable data prohibits one's ability to properly manage your attributed uh, population. And by default, it impacts your your quality and your utilization performance. So that's what I would say, Andrea, is is the stumbling block that we often experience from a, a value-based care contracting perspective. But certainly, uh, very much aligned with what Kristen said. Yeah, and to add to that, Michael, I know you deal with the technicalities of the contract, but I would you know caution people not just to sign something based on discussions, the devils in the details, and you know, it's very important to make sure that all the assumptions have been verified and that the value-based contract says what you think it says. And if there are assumptions about resources that are available, um, you know, that needs to be baked in and documented. You know, anytime you're accepting downside risk, you know, you need to know what you're signing. 
Agreed. Agreed. And if you have the opportunity to add on to, to, to your last comments there, Kristen, if you have the opportunity to seek and receive, you know, the, the, the data that's, that's being mentioned or highlighted within the agreement or any other, uh, any other items within the agreement beforehand, before even executing the agreement, that's certainly something that, that would be advantageous. Um, I, I've experienced something most recently where, you know, we've uh, executed on a quality program only to find out that the types of reports that um, we should be receiving are not what we expected to receive. So certainly addressing that beforehand is, is key. So, so Michael and Kristen, I think you've both given some um, really uh, significant um, examples and food for thought for listeners. Um, as we wrap things up, I'm going to ask you both uh, the same question. Is there anything else that you think listeners should know or consider in regard to value-based care in the current environment? Something that you haven't talked about yet, uh, but you want to leave listeners with um, as, as parting words. Um, I'm going to start with Michael. Yeah, yeah, I have a few a few thoughts here. Um, one of one I've already touched on, which is you know data, access to data, and such. Uh, so I'll touch on some of the other things that come to mind. So uh, importance of cultural change, and this is something that I think would be more applicable for those listeners that are now uh, entering the value-based space, um, are considering to enter the value-based care space. And are still in that you know uh, entry level, if if you will, of of this this uh, area, which is implementing value based care requires a, a shift in mindsets and culture across the healthcare ecosystem. Um, it, it involves moving, as we stated, from a fee for service approach to one that prioritizes collaboration, uh, care coordination, and patient outcomes. So, you know, it, it's important to understand uh, what what we've said here. Um, it's important to understand that, that it is it is a journey, um, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Uh, the second is uh, collaboration and care coordination, which I think Kristen touched on uh, at a certain point uh, earlier. Uh, the co collaboration among healthcare providers, uh, payers, and other key stakeholders is key uh, to successful value-based care. So listeners should foster relationships and establish effective communication channels to promote care coordination, uh, share best practices, and address gaps in care. Uh, collaborative efforts could lead to, to better patient outcomes, uh, reduce duplicative services, and improve resource utilization. Uh, so ultimately, you know, achieving the goals of value-based care requires a, a comprehensive approach that considers the legal, regulatory, cultural and op operational aspects of healthcare delivery uh, by staying informed, as we've been saying throughout this, um, this podcast, uh, collaborating with stakeholders and prioritizing patient-centric care, listeners could navigate the current environment and drive positive changes in healthcare through value-based care. Thanks so much, Michael. Uh, Kristen, you want to weigh in um, with um, some final thoughts and and let us know if there's anything that you think listeners should um, know or consider in regard to value-based care in the current environment, something you haven't already mentioned. Sure, I feel like for years now, value-based care has been sort of a buzzword and you know, we, we hear about it, but it's not 
something to take immediate action on. Um, but I think that's changing. The momentum is really moving towards more value-based care in the government programs and commercial as well. Um, so I think you know it's time to kind of look around and, and look forward and see what um, what your strategy might be in the next few years, and also look around you in your market and see you know it's changing with all of these disruptors. Um, sort of the referral patterns may be different, and you know figure out what the, the new future looks like. I think one trend that um, you know we've seen for years is neutrality and that is very consistent with value-based care and so kind of you know considering investments in outpatient services versus versus inpatient or in home care or in virtual care um, you know obviously that's picked up a lot of momentum um, so you know predict that that will continue um, I think that from a um, operational standpoint as Michael said you need a lot more communication and collaboration in value-based arrangements. You know, a lot of hospitals and other providers operate in silos, um, but if you've got a value-based arrangement, you need to have communication between your managed care team that's structuring value-based payment contracts between your quality team um, and between physician contracting, you know, just as an example of three. And, um, you're going to need buy-in from all of the stakeholders, um, and that includes your physicians. And so I've seen multiple different studies about physician compensation, and, you know, right now it seems like uh, we're still largely in the work RVU productivity model of physician costs, um, but we're seeing that shift and um, seeing a little bit more of the physician comp tied to performance metrics and outcomes. Um, also, I think just the resources required for value-based care are pretty enormous, and a lot of systems have been investing in healthcare IT, EHRs, um, but it also involves sort of clinical decision support, care pathways, you know, additional staffing, care coordinators, um, and just different types of staffing, and so that, that takes a while to implement. And then finally, I think just on the regulatory front, we have seen um, a lot of loosening of regulations. HHS implemented its regulatory sprint towards coordinated care with the goal of easing some of the restrictions that might have been impeding the shift towards value-based care. And um, so that I think is a great trend. It's a lot to work out. You can't just say, I'm doing something with a value-based purpose and get a free pass. Rather, you have um, you know options to rely on some of the old safe harbors and exceptions that are the fraud and abuse laws, or you have new opportunities which are exciting um, under the the new value-based rules and some of the related exceptions and safe harbors that were put out outcomes and patient engagement and safe, um, support. But it requires work and a lot more oversight than we're used to with some of the traditional um, exceptions. And I guess I'll leave, I'll leave it on, you know, value-based care is not one size fits all. There are a lot of opportunities out there to take, you know, take it in different forms and in different degrees. Um, and so, you know, start somewhere, be creative. And, you know, typically it's, it's a challenge and it requires a different way of thinking, but it's a lot of fun to try to structure a value-based arrangement that will not only be effective, but be compliant. 
Well, thanks so much, Kristen and Michael. Um, thank you for being here today. I think we had a great conversation. Um, and um, uh, hopefully listeners um, can uh, reach out to both of you if they have some additional questions. Um, if you want to provide your contact information, uh, feel free to, to do that uh, now. I think um, it, it might be helpful for listeners to have that contact information. Uh, Michael or Kristen, do you want to share? Yeah, of course, certainly. Um, from my end, um, I could be reached uh, via email at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot Lamell, L-E-M-E-L-L at adventhealth.com. That's A-D-V-E-N-T-H-E-L-T-H dot com. Um, and I uh, would definitely look forward to receiving any communication and opportunities to engage with, with, this, with this audience. And you can find me on LinkedIn or on the McGuire Woods website. Um, my email is kwoodrum at mcguirewoods.com. And you know, feel free to give me a call. My, my number's on the site. And I love talking about this, so don't be shy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.